invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 7. 2 Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 7. It's toward the end of the Bible. If you need to use a table of contents, it's, uh, it's a good seven-eighths of the way through my Bible, if that helps you find it. Last week we talked about how ministry is not primarily about letters of recommendations and resume building, how ministry is about God's sufficiency to do an internal new covenant work of God's indwelling spirit in his members, in his family. So we contrasted the new covenant and the old covenant, and we noted that the world does not need, as Piper says, cool Christians who are culturally saturated. It needs exiles with the scent of heaven and the aroma of Christ. We want to smell like Jesus. And so we're going to be continuing that theme today because the text continues the theme of the New Covenant and the Old Covenant and the completion in the New Covenant. Twelve times in twelve verses today, you're going to notice the word glory when we read the text in a moment. Twelve times in twelve verses, we're going to notice the word glory, mostly in the first five verses and then again in the very last verse of our material today, verses 7 through 18. And you will want to follow along in the Bible whenever I read that. And if you have a personal Bible or a journal Bible, you may want to actually underscore the word glory and the frequency of its appearances. Twice in verbal form, otherwise all in noun form, the word glory. So it probably would help us this morning if from the onset we would consider the word glory. Commonly, uh, when a child unrobes in the wrong people's company, we say, there he was in all his... Right, exactly. When we speak of a time of greatest achievement or popularity or success of something, we would say that was the glory of the days of radio. That was the glory of the days of radio. You could say that about any number of things. We speak of glory as where we go when as believers we die, right? We go to glory. And so biblically, though, more specifically, what is glory? And even more specifically still, what is glory as it pertains to God? We want to talk about God. What is glory as it pertains to God? Here's an excerpt from John Piper's sermon on the subject. He said, defining the glory of God is impossible. I say because it is more like the word beauty than the word basketball. If somebody says that they have never heard of a basketball, they don't know what a basketball is, and so they say, define a basketball, then that would not be hard for you to do. You would use your hands, and you would say, well, it's like a round thing made with leather or rubber about 10 or 9 inches in diameter, and you blow it up, you inflate it so it gets kind of hard, and then you can bounce it like this, and you can throw it to people, and hopefully they catch it, and you can run while you're bouncing it, and that's how they play the game, and then there's a hoop at the end. It used to be a basket. And you can tell the history of Naismith, and you can try throwing the ball into that hoop, and that's why we call it basketball. And they would have a pretty good idea within five minutes or so. They'd be able to spot a basketball when they saw one next time, and they could tell it probably apart from a football, to be sure, and maybe even with a keen eye, a soccer ball. Fiber asserts, and I think rightly, you can't do that with the word beauty. Beauty is not like basketball. There are some words in our vocabulary that we can communicate with, not because we can say them, but because we can see them. We can point. If we point at it enough times and see enough things together, we say, that's it. That, that's it. That's it. That's what that is. 
and we might be able to have a common sense of beauty. But when you try to put beauty into words, it's very, very difficult. It's the same thing with the word glory. So how shall I do it? You have to try to define the word glory because we can't just leave it for people to fill up on their own. Here's the way that he tries to do it. He takes it and he tries to contrast it biblically with the word holy and ask, what is the difference biblically between the holiness of God and the glory of God? And in doing that, I think we get a little bit of a handle of what this term glory means in relation to God. So here's, the, here's an attempt from the onset at that. So listen carefully. In the Bible, I don't know of any truth that is more fundamentally pervasive than God's zeal to be glorified. His zeal for us to think and feel and act as glorious as He is. We don't, act, we don't add to His glory, so we want to make God's glory shine. We want to make His glory visible because we can't add to it. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your God who is in heaven, the text says. The goal of your life should be to live so that when people know you well enough, they would say, God is glorious. God is glorious. When they know you well enough, when they know Matt well enough, they should say, not, not that Matt is glorious, but when they know me well enough across time, the goal of my life and I want this to be the goal, the application goal, the action of this sermon, is that the goal of your life, the goal of my life, the goal, the goal of our life together, that our hope together, that your life, that my life, is that when people know you and me and us well enough that they would say, God is glorious. Let that be your goal. Not that they would say, Matt is glorious, or you fill in your name, that Use your name, your proper noun, is glorious. But that God is glorious. That is our goal. That's our entire life's goal. The glory of God is important. And since this is the goal, this is probably why God does not let us, why God lets us sin as much as he does, is it shows a contrast between us and him for sure until finally that's eradicated in the believers of the Lord. The glory of God is going public with his infinite worth. And the holiness of God is rather his intrinsic value, his intrinsic worth. And so the holiness of God is his intrinsic value. It's what he's worth. But the glory of God is when that reality is made public, when it's known publicly. When that holiness goes public in creation, then the heavens are telling the glory of God and human beings are manifesting his glory because we are created in his image and we're trusting his promises so that we make him look gloriously trustworthy. The public display of the infinite beauty and worth of God is what it means to give God glory. It's what glory means. And here's how Piper explains it. I think it's excellent. Isaiah 6, you're probably all familiar with that verse in Isaiah 6. Where, it, where the seraphim say, holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. You Probably many of you, are, if you're new with us, that's a popular verse in Isaiah chapter 6. And it's an intensification of the Hebrew word for holy. Holy, holy, holy is the, word, is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His holiness. And the astute Bible student would say, no, that's not what it says. It doesn't say the whole earth is filled with His holiness. It says the whole earth is filled with His glory. And so when that holiness goes public in the earth and fills it, that's what we call glory. And even if we can't define it, we can definitely recognize it. We can appreciate it. We can cascade it. When that going public in the earth 
and when, it, when his holiness goes public in the earth, and when, when it's filled with it, and when we are refracting it, then that's glory. God's glory is the radiance of his holiness, is a different way to say it. God's glory is the radiance of his infinite worth, his valuable perfections. So glory is thinking, considering, imagining with mental faculties, with your heart, with your inner part, God's grandeur, who God is. Inadequately, yes, but biblically, to be sure, is how we are to think of who God is and then therefore give Him glory. The New Testament idea of glory is represented by the Old Testament word kabod with root ideas of weightiness, of heaviness, of worthiness, of splendor, of reputation. That Hebrew word is used 200 times in the Old Testament, often translated glory or splendor. The New Testament idea of glory is the word family doxa. It's where we get the concept of doxology, to give glory to God. And that is the word or some derivative therein that is used 12 times in our text. I think it would be a good time to read our text, don't you? Let's read our text together. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. And after we'll read it, after we read it, I'll try to explain to you how we're going to, to make sense of it together. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now, verses 12 through 17 aren't going to utilize the word glory, and then verse 18 is going to bring it back into play again. And that's how we'll divide our talk today. Our sermon, our understandings together from this text will be verses 7 through 11 and then verses 12 through 18. So listen to this as the second half. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For the, to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is a Spirit, and when the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, present tense, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. May God bless the reading of His Word and administer grace unto you hearers. In a very real way, you're being changed is connected with your beholding the glory of God. In a very real way, your being changed, the process of you being changed, is connected with your beholding the glory of God. And we see in this text that God gets glory, number one, in the giving of the old covenant law, 
Moses' shining face. And number two, in the giving of the new covenant gospel. And so if you want to take notes this morning, as I talk about the first point in verses 7 through 11, God gets glory through the giving of the old covenant law. Old covenant law, number one. Old covenant law, number one. And number two, God gets glory through the giving of the new covenant gospel, number two. New covenant gospel. Last time, highly recommend you note takers write this down. God gets glory through the giving of the old covenant law, verses 7 through 11. God gets glory through the giving of the new covenant gospel, verses 12 through 18. Colin Cruz in his Tyndale commentary helps us here. He says that this passage falls into two sections. The first section, verses 7 through 11, is expositing Exodus 34, 29 through 32, which tells the glory that attended the giving of the law, the glory reflected in the shining face of Moses, which struck fear into the hearts of the Israelites. Do you remember how Brother Ron read that to start the service? He read Exodus 34, 29 to 32. The Apostle Paul, writing 2 Corinthians, recognizes that the Old Covenant was accompanied by glory, and he uses a rabbi method of explanation to argue from the lesser to the greater. And so that's what we want to do with our first point. Look at the arguments from the lesser to the greater. It was a classic rabbi argument. In our second point, verses 12 through 18, it's an exposition of Exodus 34, verses 33 through 35. And Brother Ron read that as well to start the service. All Scholars are almost universally locked in that the Apostle Paul has in view Exodus chapters 32, 33, and 34, and particularly Exodus 34, verses 29 to 35, when he writes the verses that are 7 through 11 and then 12 through 18. And it is impossible to make sense out of what you read here without reviewing and refreshing on Exodus chapter 34. And so we're going to do that as we go along here today. Paul's attempt in this interpretation is to show how the conceal from the Israelites showed the fading nature of of the glory which accompanied the old covenant, and the veiling of Moses' face was something analogous to the veil which lay on the minds of many Jewish contemporaries in Paul's day, and really in our day as well, many Jewish contemporaries in our day who cannot properly understand the law of Moses when it's read in services, synagogues, church services. Believers, by contrast, are those who with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord. So no, no more disclaimers and explanations. Let's dive into it. Point number one, Looking at the first five verses in our text, the glory of God shown in the giving of the old covenant law and Moses' shining face. Let's refresh on Exodus 34, 29 through 32 now, shall we? Here's what it says. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. Now, just, just a little bit of explanation about Exodus, and then we'll go to Corinthians, because they're doing this. They're doing this. Um, Exodus the events of Exodus happened in the 15th century B.C., and so it's just say 1,500 years before the ministry of the Apostle Paul, which took place in the A.D. 50s, probably 
This probably later was written in AD 56, something like that. The church was started just five years earlier, maybe four years earlier, during Paul's second of three missionary journeys across Asia Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey, the Mediterranean Sea, the Aegean Sea. If you think Macedonia today, if you think the region of Greece, you're at it. And so he's writing this letter to the church at Corinth, but he's reflecting, for some reason, he's reflecting on the, what we call the Old Testament, or what might be thought of as, in this sense, the Old Covenant, might be thought of as the Law of Moses. In fact, that is spoken of, the written Law of Moses, or the first five books of the Old Testament, is spoken of in shorthand by just speaking of Moses in this text, as we can easily pick out of our text today as we read through it. So what is it that we're to get from Exodus 34 in relation to this? Well, think about the context of Exodus 34. He's told, Exodus 34, 29, or we're told, rather, that Moses, the lawgiver, came down from Mount Sinai with the law, with the first iteration of the law, to be sure. This is not all 609, but it's the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are still extremely important to our understanding of the rule of law today. And when Moses came down from the mountain, the two tablets of testimony's hand came down from the mountain, the people noticed that he, his face was shining. They were kind of afraid. Now, think about this for a moment. Why were they afraid? What's going on that they're afraid? Do you remember the golden calf incident? Some of you will. Exodus 32. This has been a people that have been rebellious to the God that has recently delivered them from the heavy-handedness of the Egyptian slave masters. They have crossed the Red Sea. They have been granted access to law. God is entering into a relationship with his people, and Aaron leads a charge to build a golden calf, an idolatrous worship. Now, is idolatry giving glory where glory is due? Answer, no. Is idolatry frequently decried as deplorable, abominable in the Bible? Yes. If you read the Bible, idolatry is frequently decried. And so in a very real sense, what Moses is doing is he's, he's trying to mediate. He's trying to be an intermediary between the people that are left that didn't sufficiently stop what's taking place and God. God has done all these miracles on behalf of these people and they have not acted commensurate with His holiness. Now, frankly, we don't either, really, do we? We don't act commensurate with His holiness either. So what's different about us and them? Well, in one sense, nothing. We're both fallen in the image of man. We are like our first parents, Adam and Eve, in that we are rebellious, and we rebel against God continually. And in a sense, there's not much difference between us. But this text in this sermon helps us to see that there is a difference in our circumstances. And that is where we are in the unfolding revelation of God is we have access through the Spirit that indwells every believer. We have that because of the promises of the new covenant. And so he that is at work in us is greater than he that is at work in the world, right? Just the same as we are we are saved by Christ's work, looking back at what He did. Certainly, the faithful in the congregation of Israel in 1500 B.C. would have only had any hope of being saved by looking forward to a Messiah that would deliver them from their sins. True. But the difference between us is, 
in that epoch, the Spirit biblically seems to be coming and going. It would come upon, and it would come upon, and it would go. The newness of the new covenant is that the Spirit came and stayed. Differently, we cannot be thought to be Christians, biblically speaking, without realizing that we have the Spirit. That is the identifying marker of us. It can be as difficult to define as beauty. It's not like basketball. There it is. You know, it's right over there, right above that fat layer. There it is. That's not it. It's hard to identify where spirit is. It is that God has regenerated us or made us new by the power of his spirit. So Moses is coming down from the mountain, not having eaten or drank. It is truly a God experience. And the, the, the closer that he gets to God, the more he wants of him. And he wants to be with God, and he comes back down, mediating for, his, for the people. And as he comes down, the people notice, the leaders of the congregation notice, that Moses has a, a glow about him. There's just something different about him. He's, he's got a glow. It's, he's, he's, he's shining brightly. Well, what's happened? He's been in the presence of God. And God is holy. He is he, he's everything. He's infinitely valuable. And in some way, Moses is reflecting the, the worth of God, and that is giving him glory. Just a quick pause. That's what our aim is, right? We talked about this in the first part of the sermon. I'm going to mention it again. That's our aim. That should be your aim. Your goal of your life is not to give yourself glory. It's to give God glory. That's not insignificant. Because when we get up in the morning... And we brush our teeth and we wash our hair and we get dressed for the day. We don't always have in view the glory of God. It is He that is in work within us that is moving us or transforming us from being obsessed with Matt's glory to being obsessed with God's glory. And the Bible teaches us that your obsession with God's glory is commensurate, or it is connected rather, not commensurate, it's connected with your being transformed. That as you behold His glory, you become more like Him. The, the, the glow, if you want to use the metaphor, is there. Now, I told you that there was glory in the giving of the Old Covenant Law. I don't want to throw shade at the Old Covenant Law here. The Old Covenant Law is essential. In fact, we would understand the sinfulness of our sin if it weren't for the law of Moses. I mean, if I were to rattle through the Ten Commandments right now and take the time to do that, most of you would know that you've broken at least one of them and fallen short of the glory of God, right? If you pushed back like the rich young ruler, we could read the Sermon on the Mount and we could impose upon you a sense that even if you didn't actually break the law by letter, you actually broke the law because you thought about doing things that God would never think about doing. Differently, there is no honest person in this room that can say with integrity, I've not sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so the giving of the Ten Commandments is good for us all because as we learned last week, that law is a teacher, it's a pedagogue for us toward salvation. It readies us for salvation. We need more preaching and teaching of the law, not less, because we need to be readied for repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, which is two parts of the same coin of the reception of the gospel. 
We need the law. In other words, we can't preach a cheap kind of grace that doesn't consider why Jesus had to die. Cheap grace really, really weakens the range of meaning of what grace is. And it does not give God glory due His name. God is utterly holy. His holiness cannot be compromised any more than His godness can be compromised. He's of infinite worth. He is so valuable that what we do as we come in contact with Him by His grace is realize in fear, I'm not holy. And then realize in faith, He's making me so. And that is so wonderful. And it is, it's the rub of the gospel. But we're still trying to preach point one. And that is the glory and the giving of the old covenant law is in, is in the audience of one. It's in Moses' one shining face. Listen to how Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 7 through 11. Listen to these verses afresh and, and point, find the arguments from the lesser to the greater. There's three of them. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what we what was being brought to an end came with glory, right? The law of Moses, the old covenant law came with glory. Much more will what is permanent have glory. So Paul presents a contrast between the ministry of Moses and the ministry of the new covenant in Christ's blood. The former produces death, the latter life. The former was temporary, the latter eternal. The former produced condemnation, the latter produces righteousness. The former had glory, the latter has glory forevermore. Paul expands on his statement that the letter kills through this exposition of Exodus 34, which recounts Moses' shining face when he came down from Mount Sinai with two tablets of the covenant. The concept of the glory of God is where we are this fall in this church. Again and again, through the study for this sermon, through Brother Matt D'Amico's chosen topic to teach a joint Sunday school class right here next Sunday, these things weren't coordinated through the study that the Lord brought to our attention, Behold Your God, that's now going to be in our resource library for the future, for people to study the attributes of God. I have been convinced that God has led us to the study of Himself through His Word, to the doctrine of God this fall, and I want you to lock in on that. There are many good resources out there about knowing God. J.I. Packer, Don Carson, Bruce Ware, great books written, small books. There's online articles for free. But join us in the study of God this fall as one way to apply this sermon. In a very simple way, just show up next Sunday morning at 9.15 right here, and and Brother Matt D'Amico will do the rest because he's a wonderful teacher who is steeped in the study of who, who God is, the doctrine of God as it is, has made himself known in Scripture. Robert Murray McShane said it like this, O people of God, for every one look that you give to yourself, give ten gazes to Jesus. 
what a great, great way of thinking of beholding your God, right? For every one look to self, we're fixated on ourselves, aren't we? We want help, helps for self, self-helps. We want, we want to be our most beautiful self. We, 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 we are fixated on our self-sufficiency and making our way in life. And It's not that we should not put forth effort, but our grounding principle in life is to give God glory. That is the chief end of man and woman. Give God glory. Make it your aim. And the specifics will come out in the wash. But this is an indicative passage. It's not an imperative passage. It's a passage about, about drawing your attention to the connection between beholding God and your being transformed into the likeness of Christ. You, you don't become more like Christ by focusing on looking at yourself all the time. You take one look and you're going to know you're a sinner like me. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Introspection will only take you so far, but humility will take you further still because beyond what the law does to convict us, we look to Jesus. Friends, spend time with persons that talk about Jesus. If you've got discretionary time, pick somebody that loves to talk about Jesus. And you say, oh, believer, well, I don't spend a lot of time talking about Jesus. Well, let this be the first of a thousand days where you resolve to be that friend that people that are following my admonition just now will want to spend their discretionary time with because you started today, the first of a thousand, to talk about Jesus. Look to Jesus. Study Jesus. Learn about Jesus. Teach Jesus. Speak of Jesus. Worship Jesus. Jesus has done so much for me. Has he done so much for you? Speak of him. You talk about that which you, which you put value in, right? You do that. That's what you do. If you, if you appreciate someone or something, you talk about it. Talk about Jesus. Give him glory, for he is holy and you and I are not. Second point, the glory in the giving of the new covenant, the glory given to God in the giving of the new covenant gospel, God's glory shown in the new covenant gospel that we see beyond the veil. Listen to Exodus 34, verses 33 through 35, because our text today, it has it in view, and I want you to as well. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, so brightness. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Exodus 34, verses 33 through 35. So some scholars, many scholars think, they part ways here, but many of them think that his fading of his shoning as he's away from the presence of God, that he, that he didn't want the people to see the fading, and so he was veiled so that they, they didn't see the process from being lit up to being somewhat normal. I don't. There's also other views on why the veil was there, but certainly the marrow of the meaning is that Moses had been in the presence of God and that his brightness was mitigated by a veil because everybody realized that 
Moses had been in the presence of holiness and that they had not, and that he was mediating God's ways, his law to them. However, imperfectly, we now know that they were going to be able to follow it. They were receiving the rule of law from God via Moses. Now, again, I said this earlier, but I need to make this clear for everybody. Some of you already know this. Some of you need to learn this. When we talk about Moses and Moses' writings, a lot of times we can just talk about Moses and mean Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in the Bible. The first five books of the Bible are associated with the name Moses. If you hear someone talk about the law and the prophets, they're talking about all of the books of the Old Testament. Jesus sums it up this way, and you can see this in his comments in the walk to Emmaus in Luke 24. In fact, Jesus talks with his disciples and explains himself as he had been foreshadowed and talked about and written about in the law and the prophets. He understood the law and the prophets to be about him. And so you can read about that in Luke 24 if you'd like to do that. Now, realizing that Moses had mediated this law and that we now have it written about in the first five books of the Bible, with that lens and that veil, listen to 2 Corinthians three twelve through 18 again. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are very bold. Not like Moses. Now, pause for just a second. Some believe, and I think this is accurate, that Paul had been accused of not being as strong as Moses, that his message wasn't as good as Moses, that he didn't have enough letters of recommendation from people that were were Jewish scholars, that Paul didn't bring enough to the table. And this may be his way of saying, I'm not like Moses intentionally. You remember what happened with the golden calf and the giving of the law and how imperfectly you kept it? You need more than Moses. It's sort of like he's saying, yeah, you're right. Go ahead and attack me, people. I, those super apostles that were attacking him, that had, were running roughshod over the church at Corinth while Paul was off strengthening and planting other churches. I'm not like Moses. So, so listen to this text in that way. He says, we have this hope, we're very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Pause after verse 13. You see where scholars think, you're a scholar now, you've been reading this, this sure does dovetail with Exodus 34, doesn't it? It has it in mind. It's very difficult to really appreciate 2 Corinthians without having a whole biblical theology, without having read Exodus and being able to make that connection. Now, part of that's our discipline to read through the Bible over the course of our lives and become biblical theologians. But part of it is we have to choose a guide or guides, plural, in in the church that we go to, wherever we live, that is able to do that for us, that can help us say, this has that in mind and all of this means that, and here's how it's about Jesus. When you're choosing a church, and you, you will have to do that, some of you will over the course of your life, have that in mind. You won't all live at one place your whole life. Some of you will. Some of you have to move. Have that in mind. Find teachers and find a church that has teachers that can help you see Exodus in light of 2 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Exodus in light of Jesus. Find somebody that can do that. And you yourself resolve as a manner of beholding your God and then therefore being being transformed into the likeness of Christ. Resolve yourself to read through the Bible. Read through the Bible with regularity. Have a Bible reading plan. They're, they're everywhere online. You can find one easily. We have print versions in the foyer. Read through the Bible and behold your God. Now back to the text. Verse 14. But their minds were hardened. You remember the golden calf episode? Their minds were hardened. To this day, when they read the Old Covenant, and now he's pivoting to 55 AD and the Jews 
that didn't see Christ in the Old Testament, didn't see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. To this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. So now he's, he's going to use a metaphor now. That veil remains unlifted. They don't see. Because only through whom is it taken away? Who lifts the veil of the law? Christ. Who makes the law find its proper place in salvation history? Christ. How do we get to the new covenant of grace? Christ. We get it to it, though, through an understanding of the law that condemns us to die eternally. Nobody in hell has a just case against God for them being there. They put themselves there through their utter sinfulness and rebellion against God. Listen to me, unbeliever. If you would indulge me in a forceful comment, if you reject this gospel for the rest of your life and you find yourself eternally separated from a God that you would not embrace, you have no just cause to blame God for your eternal state. Repent while you have time. Repent for the day of the Lord is at hand. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. It's a glorious gospel. Nobody in hell, no unbeliever in hell, has just cause to blame God for their estate. You didn't want him now. You won't have him then. But this second point, oh, it's, but's in the text. But is in the text. Look at verse 14. But their minds were hardened. Think of conjunctions. Look at verse 16, though. But, you see that? When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Verse 15 is instructive. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, we could extract from that probably the whole Old Testament, anything about the Old Covenant. When the Old Testament is read, a veil lies over the, the hearts of some peoples, some Jewish-like peoples that know things about the Bible, but they don't get this. They don't get this. Hell will be replete with people that knew things about the Bible and didn't get Christ. Christ. And I don't want that for you. I, I want you to hear my heart. I'm preaching with humility, but for the grace of God opening the eyes of my heart, the veil would be there for me. I wouldn't be able to see Christ in the Old Testament. I wouldn't understand that he is the point of the scriptures and that only in him, covered in him, with him as my advocate, will I have admission into the eternal kingdom of God. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. And, and listen to me, friends, I, I don't need you to check a box on a bulletin. I don't need you to walk down the side of an aisle to do that. If you need to talk to one of us after church, tell us what you, what you prayed. Great. But the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The way I read it, you can call on him right now, right there. Right now, right there. In fact, do so. You don't even need to bow your head and close your eyes, although you can. Call upon the name of the Lord. I repent of my sin. I am a sinner. I need you as my Savior. Fix me. I need your spirit. I can't do it. I get it now. All this horizontal sufficiency has given way to your sufficiency. I'm looking up now. I'm beholding you. Perhaps for the very first time. That is conversion. And that matters. It matters so much. Somewhere in my notes here, I've got a listing of the doctrine of salvation. I don't remember where, oh, there it is. It's coming from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. We have a copy out there. I'll spare you the 1,289 pages. I'll just read from two of them. Uh, here's what Grudem writes. It's so helpful. 
The hope is that we see Christ for who he is. We are converted to Christ. We all have sinned and deserve eternal punishment from God. Christ died and earned salvation for you. God applies that salvation to your life. And in Grudem's 32nd chapter on election and reprobation, election for believers and reprobation for unbelievers, he helps us with the ordering of this salvation. And it might be helpful to you if we just walk through this briefly. He says, first, there's a gospel call proclaiming the message of the gospel to you. Then there's regeneration inside. You must be born again, being born again. Then there's conversion. You express faith and repentance. Then there's justification. You are made in right legal standing with God. You are made right with Him. Then there is adoption, membership in God's family universally, but hopefully that gets worked out as membership in God's family locally. And so gospel call, regeneration, conversion, justification, and adoption are listed in his classic order of salvation, which is not unique to Wayne Grudem. It's just a systematic understanding of salvation. And this page, just as a little aside for about 30% of you, maybe for all of you, this page is referenced in our church leadership training, this particular page, so that as you're wanting to grow in your understanding of the whole Bible, you can think through what the whole Bible says about the order of salvation. But, but think on this for this text and this sermon. This morning, the gospel call, a message has been proclaimed. Regeneration, you're born again. Conversion, you express faith and repentance. So if you express faith and repentance today, there's already been a bunch of stuff going on inside of you. So it may not be that I preach such a whiz-bang sermon so much as God's been working on you, and today is the day of salvation, right? That this is the day in which your salvation is confessed is told to others in the form of, well, I have faith and I repent of my sin. Let the day be the day. You will not have people upset with you because you repented of your sin. We celebrate with the angels of heaven whenever you come to faith in Jesus Christ and repent of your sin. Let today be that day for you if, in fact, this is the day of salvation. I love what we call the 316s in the Bible. We call it the 316s. This is kind of a little colloquial sort of a study, but you know about John 316, right? For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Whosoever believes in Him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. 1 John 3.16 is kind of interesting on that theme. Exodus 3.16, kind of interesting on that theme. Matter of fact, you just kind of run through some 3.16s in the Bible and you get kind of a neat study. Well, I'm interested in 3.16 in 2 Corinthians. Listen to it one more time. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. In the Old Covenant, there was one man who didn't have a veil on as he approached God in the Exodus narrative that we're interacting with today. There was one who entered the Holy of Holies. There was one. In the New Covenant, in Christ's blood, none of us have a veil. It's like being, if you have a, a president of the company that you work for, it's like being able to walk into the, that office unannounced, as long as you're respectful, obviously, unannounced, and that person receiving you in the humble manner that you intended to enter that office. You, you don't need an appointment. God has set things up by which he wants you in his office metaphorically speaking. God has removed the veil. We, 
Paul is not like Moses. He doesn't want to be considered like Moses. And the text goes on to say, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. We're free from this condemnation and this bondage and this shame. We're freed from it. I mean, did you read? Such were some of these Corinthians before they moved beyond the veil, before they were converted, before they turned to the Lord. They were in messes, absolute messes. Some of you know this. We did this one last week where we just sort of like, I, I see testimony here and here and here amongst the members of this church and what God's done in your life. Such were some of you. Now the veil's removed. It has nothing to do with what they've done. It has to do with what Christ has done and where they're going. They're being metamorphosized, being transformed. Look at verse 18. With unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed. Present tense, ongoing action. You're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord. This comes from the Lord. Oh, I mean, we are all turning to the Lord afresh today, right? We're all turning to the Lord afresh, but, but I've also spoken to those of you that are turning to the Lord for the very first time today. The old covenant mentality puts all its marbles in the works basket. Mike Andrews says, think about it for a moment. If you're working your way to heaven and someone comes along to tell you that salvation is free, you may react violently at first because you've invested a tremendous amount of time and resources in those works, and you don't want the props knocked out from underneath you. But a person that is pursuing righteous performance, whether by Jewish ceremonialism or liberal do-goodism or fundamentalist legalism, the more that they pursue that righteous performance as the gateway to heaven, the more blind they become to the truth of the gospel of grace and mercy. Let the props be knocked out today. The Apostle Paul makes it clear that only Christ can remove your blindness You'll never get there based on point one. All point one has power to do. The law has power to condemn you. But point two, that's how you get there. Christ removes the veil. He removes your, your blindness. He helps you to see the old covenant exactly for what it is, expressing the relative, the, or rather the righteousness of God and His holiness and, and your unholiness and what God wants to do about that that you could not do for yourself. We'll read in chapter 4 next time I preach that, that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing because the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers and kept them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Maybe an application of the sermon today is for you to pray for blind people. I don't mean physically blind, I mean spiritually blind. Pray. Because the gospel is veiled to the perishing. The God of this world has blinded them. And their pursuits, as trivial as they are, they don't see them as trivial. They don't see that there's this one great aim, this one great goal that they should be about. And it is to give God glory. And that that is good for them. They're blind, as we'll see. And we, we want, it's not that we're, we're not goody two-shoes about this. We are heartbroken and want to see revival in our land. We want to see the veil lifted, the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. We want the God of this age to have no more sway over them. That's what we want. Is that what you want? David Wells writes in his book, No Place for Truth, in the providence of God, the upheavals in society could pretend a very troubled future and perhaps the disintegration of Western civilization, but it may also point to a moment when in God's mercy and God's providence, the church could be deeply transformed for good. Do you want that? Pray for the transformation of the church. The transformation of the church 
needs, the one that it needs is, is this kind that results from beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. Jim Hamilton writes in his, books, God, in his books, book, God's Glory and Salvation Through Judgment. The sentence is worth repeating. The transformation the church needs is the kind that results from beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. The Bible tells this coherent story, and we've done our level best to synthesize 66 books in a relatively short amount of time this morning. We need the transformation that comes from beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. We never encounter God, David Garland says, and remain unchanged. You never encounter God and remain unchanged. Never. Beholding this glory affects the transformation as you're changed into a veritable likeness of Him. You're changed into the likeness, veritable likeness of Him. First John 3, 2 says that we shall see Him like He is. We shall see Him like He is when faith becomes sight. The greater glory of this new covenant ministry eclipses the glory of the ministry of Moses. That's what chapter 3 is telling us. It's what all of 2 Corinthians tells us. It's what the entire New Testament is telling us. It explains that we are, can be encouraged in the midst of our weaknesses because His weakness displays the power of God. Think of Christ. He goes to the cross, right? In weakness. And His utter power is revealed. His utter power is revealed because he conquers the prince of this age that is blinding the eyes of unbelievers through humility and death on a cross, even death on a cross. And he rises in triumphal victory and leads all of us to triumphal victory. Approach him with humility. God is worthy of worship. He has removed the veil. He has removed your veil. Each week as we gather out, we are people with no barriers between us and God. None. No barrier. No, not one. We aren't spiritually dead or blind or condemned. We are the people who are spiritually alive and see and are free. We've been made right. And that's why we sing like we do these songs this morning. Behold this glory of our God. Together. Look around. These are your roommates for all of eternity. We will be together with Christ. We need to get cozy giving Him glory now, don't we? Not cozy in an irreverent sense, but cozy in a this is normal sense. This is who we are. We'll form a heavenly choir, maintain a humble posture toward Him. In a very real way, your being changed is connected with your beholding of God. God got glory in the giving of the first covenant or of the Old Covenant law, rather, and He gets glory in the giving of the New Covenant. It is, in a sense, one real covenant, a before and after, an unfinished and finished, as God gives us the gospel. Twelve times in our twelve verses today does the word glory appear. Would that we would give God the glory due His name. Let's bow our heads and pray. Thank you, Lord. We worship Your name. We praise Your name. We recognize what you've done for us. Thank you for granting us the Spirit to indwell us that we might see things that we otherwise would be blinded from seeing. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Let us continue to meditate on the words of Scripture as our ushers come to collect our offerings and our prayer requests on our tear-offs.